0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets.
1: So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they lived near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things.
2: Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Robin Shawokis. Um Barbara's on the road this week and I am at the New England Wildlife Center in Weymouth, Massachusetts, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Greg Mertz, the odd pet vet, and we'll be discussing some common citizen ailments, some preventative care for your companion parrots, and a little bit about what goes on here at the Wildlife
1: Center. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think? One bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and things will be soaring back right after these messages.
0: What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? Get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Critty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain. Likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order.
3: Let's talk pets on petliferadio.com.
1: A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, Where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, In France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back
2: to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. Hi, Dr. Mertz. How are you?
3: Nice to see you. You too. Thank you.
2: Welcome to Wings and Things. Um, you've got. A really interesting job here at the Wildlife Center.
3: I have too many jobs. Too here many jobs <laughs> here <laughs> too at the many Wildlife Center. <laughs> no, actually, it's uh, it, it really is a, a job made to order, uh, and it includes um, everything from taking out the trash to uh, helping uh, uh, teach classes and uh, also uh, doing lots of veterinary care for both wildlife but also uh, pet birds and, and other animals.
2: So how did you get into veterinary medicine in the first place? Is it a lifelong passion? Or?
3: Not a lifelong passion at all, actually, and I, I, um, I'm I, a good example and uh, um, encourage anybody who wants to do a uh, career change uh, that it's, uh, it's very doable and something you should follow and, and try to do. Um, I actually started to go to veterinary school because I wanted to become a better teacher Okay. I wanted to know, I, I'm a teacher by trade, not, uh-huh. not a, not a uh, classroom teacher, but rather a uh, museum and nature center uh, type of extracurricular teacher, uh, especially in environmental education. And it seemed to me, as I looked around at the different programs, that the place that you got the best solid Uh, biology education, sort of the best well-rounded biology education was in the field of veterinary medicine. So I started down the road of of, um, going to veterinary school for that purpose but very quickly and very uh, um, solidly fell in love with the process of veterinary medicine Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I enjoy the the clinical setting especially with with clients because Uh, Every client and every exam room and every appointment is really a mini classroom Mm -hmm. and it gives an example, it gives an an opportunity to talk a lot about the biology of different kinds of organisms, especially in the kind of medicine we do. We don't treat dogs and cats here at all, Uh, we don't treat horses and cows, but we do treat about 300 maybe a little over 300 different species of, of animals
2: it's a pretty wide knowledge base there then. it's a
3: real thin knowledge base too okay. <laughs> no <Okay>. I, <laughs> and I, I joke about that a little bit no uh, what uh, your typical uh, physician and your your uh, usual uh, veterinarian who sees dogs and cats or horses and cows they have a lot of ne- depth of knowledge about every little. Uh, syndrome and every little uh, physiological issue and problem that uh, dogs and cats get or humans get. and um, in our case, we don't have probably any more knowledge than they do. It's just spread very to the left and very to the okay. right.
4: okay so
2: it, it's really interesting I, you know I um, seeing the number of different kinds of animals that come in. And, and like you say, every opportunity, every time someone comes in, it is a teaching opportunity that, you know, and it's, it's that person may need to know just a little bit more about how to care for their animals or what, you know, preventative things like that. And so what are the things that you, especially with parrots, I mean, that's our focus on this sure. podcast, but yeah. what are the things that you see the most coming through the door um, as far as issues with parrots?
3: Uh, issues with parrots. I think probably the most the most common issues and problems that people have. Now, I'm not even sure they're we would uh, technically refer to them as veterinary medicine, but uh, more husbandry and just basic care. Okay. Um, the uh, the interesting thing with with most parrots is. Um, Most people who have them are very much concerned about uh, beak and toenails and wing trims, Mm -hmm. things of that sort. So that's probably the most common reason that animals uh, come to us. Then in terms of disease processes, probably the most common things are uh, respiratory uh, infections, Mm -hmm. respiratory conditions. I won't even say infections, but rather conditions. Respiratory conditions of one sort or another. Uh, Everything from sinusitis to pneumonia Mm -hmm. and... uh, 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 you know, severe pneumonia. And uh, the second probably most common disease is uh, gastrointestinal upsets. Uh, Coming in with with diarrhea from one thing or another, either from diet changes or something they've eaten, or uh, technically getting a a bacterial infection or a little viral infection or something like that. Uh, Those are the two really common uh, disease processes, I, and there's another really common disease process, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna not call it quite a disease process, but rather a behavioral process. And the behavior uh, disease is uh, feather picking, right, and self mutilation, mm-hmm. and uh, so those three or four different categories really sort of in, embrace uh, probably 95% of what we do.
2: I think it's really interesting that you call the, the feather destructive or the feather plucking a behavioral issue or refer to it that way because we've we did a whole podcast on feather destructive behavior and the first thing we tell people is to rule out a physical right. um, ailment that it, that it's not, that there isn't a physical reason for this behavior and then treat it as you would any other behavior that you want to modify and, and I I'm afraid that in a lot of cases people do take their parrots to the vets and then they end up with you know, a slew of medication, or you know, creams or whatever, for feather destructive behavior, and it may not always be necessary.
3: I think a lot of the issue, uh, at least in my practice and in the in the odd pet vet practice, um, most of the most of the cases that I see, I would say 99% of the cases I see are are reasonably unrelated to a infectious and or metabolic disease process. Okay. I think, you know, I, I have a couple of reactions to it, and one is that every time you have any dyscrasia, whatever, you know, whether it's based on a, on a, a skin problem or a feather problem or even a, a gastrointestinal or a blood problem, whenever you have a dyscrasia of any sort, you immediately can begin to quantify it. In medical terms. Mm-hmm. But the real underlying, almost always, the underlying issues are about the natural, what I'm going to call the natural history of where those birds came from. Yeah. And uh, understanding that and understanding how to manipulate that environment, if possible, if you can manipulate that environment, uh, allows the body's own immune system and allows the body's own healing systems to, in most cases, correct those medical and entrees. In mm-hmm. other words those those entry points that, that we as veterinarians are going to manipulate. Um, from, my, my, from my angle I think it's much better to manipulate the environment, the enrichment process, the flock behavior and those kinds of things.
2: Those are all things that, you know, when I do my workshop that I talk to people about, that you do need to figure out what this animal really is. Not, you know, yes it's your pet, but what is it before that? What is it historically? What is it, um, not just that animal itself, but the species? Where, you know, what's the species story? And then you work from there back down to what you're going to give your bird in particular. And one of the things I tell people is you can address a lot of behavioral issues with enrichment, and a lot. And sometimes, if once you've ruled out that medical piece, you if you can create a situation where that bird is getting those things that it may be lacking, because it is in your house in a cage. Um, if you can c- come as close to that natural stimuli as possible, y- you win.
3: You know? I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, and I, I also would say that that these are controllable variables. Um, and only part of the occasions, meaning that there are just simply going to be some things biologically that we can't uh, manipulate or perform. Um, a lot of birds, I don't, I, I get I may be out of step with with scientific rigor on this, but a lot of birds will imprint, I think a lot of birds will not necessarily imprint, mm-hmm. okay, and I think there's a, there's a strength, you know, sort of a degree of how imprinted a bird c- can become, and I think in those species where um, there's a real strong imprinting between uh, caretaker and bird. I think your ability to manipulate the setting um, becomes more and more difficult. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and I think too, and, and this is not um, a, a criticism of some of our relationships with our pet birds, but I think in some cases we create that illusion, if you will, of an imprinted situation. Yes, and and that's not to say that we're not, you know, that folks aren't there out aren't fabulous parrot owners and you know wanting to do what's the very best for their animal, but sometimes we create those situations. And I know myself; I've created behavioral issues with my bird just by virtue of my actions. Sure, Um, you know, and I think sometimes. So have I. You know that needs to be to be considered as well too. Sure.
3: Uh, No, I I I agree and. Unfortunately, because of the developmental learn developmental steps by which a, a bird learns behavior, um, sometimes once they learn it, they can't reverse it. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and is a, you're, you're right. I think in a, in many cases, people, um, you know, because we're people and they're birds. I mean, you know, people s- often come to me and they'll say, "Well, just how smart is an Amazon?" Or just how smart is an African Grey? And my immediate sort of glib response is, um, they're way better at being an African grey than you are. Right. You're way, be- they're way better at being uh, an Amazon than than you are. And I think that there has to be a real significant recognition that um, two species are are uh, drawn to each other and our two species are very much interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. But the the communication process, however you create it, however you you try to recreate it, to be as close to nature as possible, it's it's not going to. It's always going to fail sure. at some level.
2: Let me ask you this: I um, with feather destructive behavior, which is you know we hear it. I get questions all the time. We get suggestions for doing another podcast on that. How how crucial is it that though that you fix that situation. You know, I've had people say to me, oh, well, you know, feather plucking can be just like biting your nails. Is that the case? I mean, can you say, is it, I've had people say, you know, oh, that bird's so unhappy, he has no feathers. Is that the direction we need to go? Is it something that, yes, you want to try to alleviate, but if you can't, is it critical?
3: I think it depends on the bird, I think it depends on the species. And I think in large measure depends upon uh, who the caretaker is. Okay. Okay. Again, I think what's happening is we sort of anthropomorphize what that bird is feeling by having done feather uh, destructive behavior. Right. And, um, you know, if we were. Pulling out all of our hair or all of the hair on our body, we you know we would be saying, oh that'd be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, if if the animal is mutilating itself and you know digging through skin and muscle sure. and whatever, that's a significant serious problem that does need both medical intervention and, and significant uh, behavioral uh, intervention. Um, I guess I, I, what I would l- like to do, uh, Robin, is to go just back up a second and just talk a little bit about. I think what one of, some of these triggers are, and, mm-hmm. and the triggers for, for, and I think that by doing that, I think it'll it'll help us sort out which birds are the ones that really need significant intervention and which ones are not. And the the, the feather plucking behavior, I think what I like to say about birds, parrots um, of all sorts, citizens of all sorts, um, are they have a fairly limited vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about. Um, I'm not talking about English vocabulary or, or human vocabulary. I'm talking about their own vocabulary of behavioral responses. And so when they get excited, uh, they need an outlet for that excitement. Mm-hmm. And that excitement can be anger, that excitement can be happiness, that uh, excitement can be a frustration, it can be a number of different feelings. You know, again, we're anthropomorphizing Sorry. and layering this on, but it makes sense. And you have these different. Um, they have these, these different uh, behavioral responses but they don't have a lot of way of showing those um, or allowing those behaviors to come out. So one of the ways that birds significantly uh, show frustration uh, in the wild and show fear in the wild and show anger in the wild is to get up and fly away. Mm-hmm. Now some birds are really good flyers and some birds are really good creep. Uh, creepers and climbers. And so those birds that that jump up and fly away, when they're in a cage or even in a house, uh, even if they're flying free in the house, they're still limited in what that behavior reaction is. And so they're sort of forced then to the next behavior um, in their repertoire of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, that is to groom. Okay. You know, if you're going to be a good bird, then you're going to groom, and you're going to groom, and you're going to groom, and you're going to groom. So it's a sort of a very natural process. And some species are, are bigger groomers than others, and some spe- some individuals within the species are more groomers than others are. In other words, there's latitude within the, the species itself, but then within the the whole family or uh, class of animals, there's also a lot of a variety. Sure. And so you know, to go back to that, you know, who needs to get care and who doesn't, I think really has to do with that owner, that caretaker at home, looking at the setting, looking at who their bird is, and understanding whether or not they've been given an outlet to fly away from a stimulus, or whether they're going to have to groom their way out of a stimulus, and if there are ways that they can manipulate that vocabulary. Are there other ways to do that?
2: That's that's a really interesting approach and I think it's it's so important as for, for almost any kind of behavior that you're seeing from your bird that you need to allow them those outlets, you know, right. what, whatever it may be. And and a lot, a lot of times we talk about um, providing, you know, a lot of enrichment or providing, you know, a lot of different alternatives. But the one thing that I keep coming back to is you need to allow them that flight, not necessarily flying flight, but that you know, fight or flight response, you need to allow them that flight opportunity, that they don't have to actually interact with something or someone if they choose not to. And I think, you know, we we were talking the other day, um, some colleagues and I, about... um, Birds that had really been manhandled and and um, abused pretty much, and I think a lot of times people go to that place where I can force this bird to do things because I'm bigger than it is. Right. You know, and and in the zoo field, you try that with the lion. You you go in there with you know, and, and see how that works for you. You know, but I think sometimes we forget, yeah. um, and we we do that. So now, what are some? Uh, actually, we're going to take a break right here, and when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about. What are some of the things people should do for preventative care, and what um, they should look for, and to figure out that they need to come see you or somebody like you?
3: I look forward to it. All Thank right, you. so
2: we'll be right back after these messages.
1: What you do? Stay perched, wings and things will be soaring back right after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories. Party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photo prop kits include funny glasses and hats.
0: Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com.
1: A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome
2: back to Wings and Things. I'm your host, Robin Shoukis, on Pet Life Radio, and I'm talking today with Dr. Greg Mertz from the New England Wildlife Center and the Odd Pet Vet. Welcome back, Greg. Nice to be here. (laughs) Um, So, preventative care, or actually, we can do either, whichever you choose first. Preventative or, let's do preventative, and then if the preventative doesn't work, when do we need to come and see you?
3: Okay, sure. Uh, Preventative care. I think preventative care starts with husbandry. And I think starts with that human-animal bond or that human-bird bond, and um, so I the things that I find useful when I'm talking with clients, um, the, the, one of the very first things that I I talk about with uh, new bird owners, you know, and this, this goes you know to the very elementary to the very simple-minded, uh, but um, I think one of the very first things you need to talk about is good diet, mm-hmm. and in my world I I love um, for, I think there's a number of really good diets on the market. I don't think I think one person is going to prefer one over another. Sure. I don't think that I have a real strong opinion about that uh, too much one way or the other. I do know that having a regular pelleted or formulated diet for bird is a good thing to have in the mix. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really important that they have a variety of things that they can also, uh, knowing which birds are nut eaters and which ones are. Um, Ie uh, fruit eaters and et cetera, and uh, then being able to provide those kinds of foods and variety in their uh, in their surroundings and if if you have that set up in other words if you have a good diet going and you have a bird that has a good bond with the with its owner um, I think ninety five percent of your problems are probably over mm-hmm. and those are not necessarily easy to come by and I I can't um, uh, I can't say that I think that I can't say enough that it, the the bond between that that caretaker and that bird is the essential ingredient to health. Right. Once that bond is established, and once that bond is understood and given some latitude to develop, um, you know, you get the diets and everything running. Then your animals are going to be in good health. Mm-hmm. Then, in terms of preventative care, I think the things that. I can most caution people against are the hazards inside of the house, and I think yeah. there's a fair number of hazards. Um, I'm all in favor of having birds be able to uh, move around the inside of the, their house or their building, wherever they're they're living. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to set up um, sort of built-in obstacles or hazards. Uh, things like big, wide-open windows that look sure. like they can fly and you know go out through them. It, mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty uh, simple-minded. At the same time. If, we see a fair number of birds that that come to us because they've been knocked goony, uh, because they whack up against something, or sure. they think there's a, you know a problem. Another uh, thing you want, to, I saw, and I guess in those cases you want to keep your windows um, with blinds on them and with blinds that are that are uh, allow a limited amount of light or whatever amount of light you want to leave, as long as they don't see it as something as a, as a passageway, you mm-hmm. know, through a, a woodland or shrub area. Um, other things that I find as real significant hazards are um, stoves. Yeah. Now, stoves are huge. Uh, people cooking are huge, um, and, the, and then the, the, you know right away as soon as we start talking about cooking. Of course, uh, if you are cooking with with birds in your house, I think your, birds need to be not in the same area. Right, they need to be restricted from that because I have, I can't tell you how many times I have uh, had birds come into me who have landed in the, the cooking spaghetti sauce. Right. And uh, who have come in because uh, someone was cooking with Teflon, mm-hmm. and there was a burned pot, and you know they, they inhale the toxins from that. Uh, you know, so I think there needs to be separation between cooking and where the birds are living and mm-hmm. able to manipulate and man- maneuver around.
2: Now you had mentioned the respiratory before when we were speaking. Yep. Um, what are th- what do you see as the causes of of those particular?
3: Both the uh, gastrointestinal diseases and the respiratory diseases uh, in most cases I think are um, created and caused by an ill-adapted bird. Okay, Okay, so I I don't think that these are highly, I mean birds do come down with highly pathogenic bacteria, Mm -hmm. but I think most of the cases we see are created by opportunistic bacteria. So what's happening is the animal it's some level is going through a stressful event in mm-hmm. its life, and as the stress levels increase, uh, so does the cortisol le- levels also physiologically increase inside the animal. And the cor- the cor- As the cortisol levels rise in the body, these are chemicals that are put out by the adrenal gland, uh, same with people and, and dogs and cats and, and birds. As that cortisol is uh, increased inside of the system, Uh, that depresses the immune response and not only do you have a depression of the immune response but you also have a little bit of a depression of the available resource uh, to allow the animal to be healthy. So I think for most GI uh, infections and most um, uh, respiratory infections there's an ill-adapted bird. That's why I was going back to that—the very first thing, which was if you have a well-adapted bird, then these other things are probably unlikely to, okay. to happen. But now realize that stress can come from um, an animal being ill-adapted it can also come from other events. Mm -hmm. Uh, Time of year, even though they may have perfectly lighted systems inside the house, uh, there's still a circadian rhythm that they are following and uh, one time of year over another is more stressful than another. Mm -hmm. Uh, Age is a stress factor. Uh, Coming down with a tumor or some other veterinary or some other uh, medical problem is also a stress factor. So there's all these different things that sort of come together as stress factors that will suppress the immune response and the resource response and the animals then come down to something that are usually pretty easily corrected with a simple antibiotic.
2: Okay. Let me. While we're talking about stress, one of the things I talk to people about is that little bits of stress are okay.
4: I'd love sure, to hear your opinion as far as sure. building
2: coping skills, if you will. Sure. Um,
3: yeah, I have, I have two reactions to that. One is... Uh, only inanimate objects don 't have any stress right so so stress you know a dead animal doesn 't have stress mm-hmm. uh, a live animal has stress it 's just a it 's a fact of definition and uh, so stress is an absolutely needed event inside of an animal 's life inside of a human being 's life if you don 't have stress you 're just not operating and right. functioning so the the second layer to that to me is that they have to be able to have healthy ways of relieving the stress. Mm-hmm. And uh, one healthy way to relieve the stress, as we talked about earlier, is to be able to fly or fl- you know, have a flight response, or to have a grooming response, or to have an anger response. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, allowing an animal to have um, being able to to get angry and, and bite. I'm not saying we should encourage biting, but at least gives them an opportunity to express because if you don't have that expression then you have frustration mm-hmm. and then you have the build-up of the stress and then it, this leads to self-mutilation. And, uh,
2: and I, I think too if we honestly look at when you say you know talk about biting, if we honestly look at the times when we get bitten, if you go to what the antecedent was to that bite, you're gonna see that that bird is trying to tell you something. It's not just, "Hey, I don't like you. I'm gonna bite you for no reason." There, there's something that leads up to that, and it is that expression of anger or frustration. Yes. Um, so that's it's interesting. I, the reason I ask about the stress is I was teaching at um, Nashville Zoo one time, and um, I have a slide that says, "Stress is it enriching?" And um, their veterinarian um, from the back of the room said, "Absolutely not." And and I, you know. And her theory was, and it was a good one, or her feeling was that we were bringing animals to her and the keepers were bringing animals to her that were sick already, and so we didn't want to be introducing extra stress in that case, which makes perfect sense. Um, I just feel as though, you know, there needs to be a little bit so that it's not when that that illness hits or when that, you know, traumatic incident occurs and they need to come see you, not that you're stressful, but when they need to come see the vet that it's not, you know, something completely out of the ordinary for them.
3: Sure, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think, um, yeah, I see his or her point that if you have a sick animal already, you want to try to pull away as many stresses as possible, so, because that will allow the cortisol levels to drop and the immune system to to build again. Uh, But nevertheless, um, you're in a crisis situation when you're going to the vet, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, my suggestion to people is is uh, um, you know keep your vet visits uh, regular, but right. at the same time only during during a crisis that needs real solution, mm-hmm. um, and you have to weigh a little bit about what that that crisis what you're going to solve with by going to the vet with the crisis. I don't want to get too complicated here. Sure. What I'm what I'm saying is, but um, my my hope is that people are coming. Uh, to the veterinarian when the veterinarian can really provide a significant response. Right. And um, that's not to say you shouldn't come to the vet and talk about husbandry and all those sorts mm-hmm. of things, because I think many veterinarians do that. Right. Uh, I also think meta- veter- many veterinarians probably do not do that.
2: Well, that's you know, I, I spoke at AFA last year, um, or AAV, I'm sorry, and one of the things that we talked about was, as a veterinarian or as a you know, a vet tech, providing that education. Um, and you as an educator originally understand right. the value of that piece. And I tell people all the time, if you've got a question and you, you know, research it and you still don't feel comfortable with the answer, call your vet. And if you can't talk to your vet, talk to one of the vet techs and, and try to get that, that answer. Um, and which brings up another um, question for me. Toxic plants.
3: Toxic plants Oh
2: if you go online you know there are, I mean how many different lists are there out there and you know this is on one list it's not on the other and I get people all the time calling or emailing and saying what about X
3: yeah I don't have I don't have a huge amount to say about toxic plants in the house I think you probably should I think there's some plants that are perfectly fine in the house that, that, that birds can graze on and mm-hmm. it's a great outlet it's a great uh, f- uh, finesse. I think if you have a question mark as to whether one of your plants is toxic, then keep your bird away from it. Right. But it doesn't mean that it's toxic. I can't remember the last time that I saw a bird coming into me because it ate something in the house and got po- let me re say that. I can't remember the last time that somebody has brought me a bird that ate a houseplant and came in and was sick from the houseplant. Okay. Um, I'm just, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking back to my, uh, there there is there was one occasion uh, several years ago, I don't even remember what kind of bird it was now, but it was one that had eaten the, um, I'm going to draw a blank on the name of the the, uh, the long, uh, heavy-duty leaves that um, I'm a plant guy. I mean, I, I know more about <laughs> plants than uh, you know you you I than your uh, most people. But I I'm drawing a blank on the name of this. Not aloe. No, no. It's a very it's a spear-like plant. Well, anyway, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but, uh, that's one occasion in 20 years of looking at birds that well, I can like think about in house house plants. Because yeah. I mean I yeah. know
2: people get you know they get really uptight about oak. And I tell them, well, it's not the wood; it's the acorn, and and it even you know at that point, or the the um, apple wood, you know, and it's it may be the apple seed; it's not the wood, and and right.
3: I, I, and I, I mean, in both cases, I think these are translations from what is toxic to people, right? That has been translated over, and I and I. Uh, uh, yeah, oak. I mean, if we were to go out and eat oak leaves, um, you know, you'd probably get away with an oak leaf or two. But it's so bitter. Why would you eat it?
2: Exactly. Well, and and, and that's it, the it, other you know, issue is you know we talk, I do work with raptors as well, and one of the things that comes up quite often is if you're providing items to raptors that are glove trained, that they um, they'll accept anything you take anything you provide them as food. And I agree to some extent that if you've got this bird that's very food-motivated, then that's what's going to happen. But at the same time, they know what to eat and what not to, to eat.
3: eat in the wild. Right. The problem in our homes, though, is that we are forcing together bored birds with True. um Plants that may be coming from the wrong side of the world, mm-hmm. uh, in their and hey, And kind of
2: interesting and new to look at. You know, let's see what this or is about, and let's yeah.
3: you know. But I, I have no problem with going out and grabbing some maple or pine or you know like that and bringing mm-hmm. into your house and giving it to your birds to let them chew down on it. And uh, mm-hmm. and you know, um, at the same time, as as I said, the only thing I can, the only thing I can say authoritatively about it is that in 20 years I've seen one bird that may, and it didn't die or anything, Mm -hmm. it just was a little off for a day or two, and it may have been total coincidence that it happened with this particular plant. But by and large, I don't see the problem, I don't see it, Um, and I think people should just use some good common sense about it. Not everything in the world is poisonous, there's 660,000 different kinds of plants in the world, 440,000 are edible, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's only a third of the plants out there that are going to be poisonous, even to a human being. And we have much more sensitive systems, probably, than most most of the birds. Okay. You know.
2: I'm going to ask you this question, and, and this is my, my favorite question to ask veterinarians, avian vets. Um, paper towel rolls.
3: To give or
2: not to give?
3: I, th- I thought you were going to ask me uh, uh, phone books. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's, that one comes up, too. Uh, but the one that I have found people feel... Either the most guilt over or that they've gone over to the dark side if they use them are the paper towel rolls. Boy,
3: again, I don't have a strong feeling one way or the okay. other. I don't. Uh, what do you think? What I
2: you honestly, mean? you know, and I, when I was, I did a little survey when I was at AAV last yeah. summer, and the answer I got the most was in moderation, it's fine. fine. If you're not giving them a vat of the glue that's on the paper towel yeah, rolls, yeah. it's okay. I, so, yeah. It's, yeah,
3: no, I, again, I don't, I don't have a strong, a strong opinion. It seems to me, um, Moderation and and uh, just common sense about a lot of this stuff. Just you know, there's so many birds living in people's homes, and we're just not seeing. You know, the thing that I see coming back to me all the time are is Teflon burn or uh, Teflon uh, when somebody's cooking with Teflon and mm-hmm. burns a pot. That one I see with some regularity. Um, I say to people all the time about avocado. Um, I can't. I think the message is so strong out there that that they don't. Come in contact with it, right. so I don't see that problem. Uh, but I don't see houseplant poisonings coming okay. to me. I do see burned birds. Uh, zinc I Zinc toxicity.
2: See, hmm? Do you see zinc toxicity or?
3: Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. That that will. Um, and I've also seen lead poisoning yeah. from paints, okay. uh, from you know chewing around uh, doorways and and uh, uh, windowsills and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Those are the big concerns that come up, you know, when I'm talking to people out doing companion parrot talks and things like that. It, those are the biggies. You know, I, I really appreciate you you telling us about your your practice and and what you're yeah, seeing. Right. So tell us about wildlife. Pretty. We only have a few minutes left, but what are you? You're the wild side of things here at the. Well, the wild center. side.
3: Let me tell you about the wildlife center and how we we operate. The wildlife center has uh, we're a hospital for wild animals. Um, the the, the thing that's cool about New England Wildlife Center is that we, are, we marry uh, the care of wildlife very distinctly with uh, education. Mm-hmm. And we bring uh, volunteers and interns, undergraduate students and high school students, and even all the way down to, to young kids uh, and all the way up through you know 90-year-olds, uh, come to our center to participate in the process of care and uh, we use the care of wildlife as an educational event. We teach the biology of the animals that we see. We see about 225 different species of wild animals, everything from hummingbirds to snapping turtles to um, coyotes and and foxes and all those sorts of things. Our goal is always to return those animals to the wild. Now the odd pet vet, where we see all the pet animals, we see that as a fee for service. So every every dollar that somebody spends in our veterinary practice goes to helping us care for wildlife. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we also, you know, take donations. Of course, we can't operate and live without donations. But we're trying very hard to uh, earn probably thirty or forty percent of our income uh, through the process of veterinary care and selling products. Mm-hmm. And, uh, foods and that sort of thing. It's a wonderful
2: center. You, the, your building is is a green building.
3: Green building, lead built to lead certification. Uh, we didn't actually go through the uh, certification process because the the application fee was too expensive right. for us. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? So.
2: Um, and and you do you know special event parties, birthdays. Yes. Um, there's a play group um, on Tuesdays, Tuesdays for yep, kids. Yep. Um, you do the Catbird Cafe on Saturday. Open yeah, we night. are the
3: only veterinary hospital in the world that has a folk and blues jam every it's Saturday great. night.
2: And, <laughs> and it's so much fun. And there's so much going on here. And literally, you know, coming in, you could learn something different every single day. You know, the, the center um, in the upstairs is the... They've, you've got all kinds nature of
3: nature center and all kinds of bones and yeah. feathers and, and uh, bits and pieces of animals. Unfortunately, many of them were patients.
4: <laughs> Wait <laughs> a minute. No.
2: So don't take any of his advice from before. No, <laughs> no. Um, there aren't any parrot bones up here, are there? No. 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 Um, we it. no. But it's it's uh, it's great because it's a please touch kind of place too. You know, right. and and I watch the little ones come in and they're so excited about learning and being here. Um, and it's really uh, what's what's
3: exciting to me is um, we're in a reasonably new setting but the, the Wildlife Center is about 25 years old I've been with the center for 20 years and it's really fascinating for me to see uh, students come in as as uh, elementary school students who are now veterinarians mm-hmm. and, um, and and if, you know, not just veterinarians but in you know wildlife research and or uh, veterinary care of one sort or another and uh, the, one of the new things that just happened recently was I'm now seeing children of former interns oh my. Uh, c- come to us as uh, volunteers and students. So uh-huh. we're seeing a second generation. Such a
2: nice a, history. That's great. That's it's really one, amazing. It's a
3: very civic engagement mm-hmm. kind of organization. And yeah. uh, we do a really good thing by caring for wildlife and all kinds of animals.
2: Super. And you're at 500 Columbian Street in Weymouth, Massachusetts. That's right. And people can check you out on the website as well and your website i have to look it up oh well, here i can give oh, it to you go it's right in.
3: ne as as in nancy in england ne wildlife.com great um, and
2: and there's all the information on the different programs that you offer and that's right. i know for scouts you have scouts come in and do tours, tours. and things like that and brownies and it's great um, but thank you so much. I really appreciate well, you sitting thank down thank you for with me having today. me. I
3: really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And
2: now you get to listen to all of our upcoming events. Um, Barbara and I have a bunch of stuff on the calendar. So quickly, on April 4th, I'll be at the Western Mass Bird Expo in Palmer. On April 19th, um, the Leather Elves will be at the Birds of a Feather Spring Show in New Hampshire. Um, April 18th and 19th, Barbara will be in Barrie, Ontario at the 2009 Parrot Behavior and Training Workshop. And April 27th, um, I'll be speaking at the Animal Behavior Management Alliance um, Conference in Providence, Rhode Island, doing an enrichment workshop. And then Barb starts her European Swing on May 9th. Um, She's doing Parrot Behavior and Training Workshop in Finland. And on the 10th as well, she's doing a Flight Training Workshop in Finland. The 16th and 17th of May, um, Parrot Behavior and Training Workshop in France. Um, You can check that out at... um, www.aedp.fr. May 23rd, she will be in Portugal doing her workshop. um, And you can, that's for more information, you can um, contact Isabel Sampaio, which in her email is M-I-S-A-B-E-L-S-A-M-P-A-I-O at gmail.com. She'll be in, Barbara will be in Northern Portugal on May 24th. Um, You can contact Isabel for more information on that. And then May 29th to the 31st, we'll be together um, doing the Best Parrot Conference in Edison, New Jersey. Best stands for Behavior Enrichment Science and Training. And Dr. Susan Friedman will also be speaking and Joanna Eccles from World Parrot Trust and uh, Dr. Daryl Stiles on avian influenza. June 6th through the 7th, Barbara will be in Brisbane, Australia at the Step Up Parrots and People Learning Together. June 20th, a Parrot Training and Behavior Workshop in Madeira, California, for Barbara. Um, August 5th through the 9th, um, I'll be speaking at the AFA conference in Houston. I'll be presenting a paper on breeding birds and enrichment. Uh, August 8th through the 15th is the AAV conference in Milwaukee, and Barbara will be presenting at that event. On September 12th, I'll be speaking at the Rocky Mountain Society of Aviculture. There'll be more information about that in upcoming podcasts. In September, Barbara will also be in Clayton, California, September 19th. Um, September 24th through the 29th, I will be at the American Association of Zookeepers teaching their enrichment workshop in Seattle, Washington. And then from September 30th to April 4th, I'll be working with companion parrot owners in Seattle, doing home visits and presenting two um, enrichment workshops. And then October 23rd to the 25th, Behavior and Learning for Veterinary Professionals in Denver with Barbara. That's hosted by the Gabriel Foundation. October 24th to the 31st, it sounds like I'll be on vacation but uh, being on a cruise, but I'll actually be presenting on the Parrot Lovers Cruise, and you can get more information at baldmantravel.com. And so we, as usual, we'd love to have you visit um, BestParrotConference.com, GoodBirdInc.com, and TheLeatherElves.com, and I should let you know that we're now selling online on The Leather Elves. So my enrichment tip for the week, um, remember that you can over enrich. Your parrot does have downtime in the wild, and you can observe those times when your bird seems to be simply hanging out, and try to give them some space around those times when it's possible. So I'm out of time for today. And if you have suggestions or questions, contact us at Robin at PetLifeRadio.com or Barbara at PetLifeRadio.com. And as always, if you'd like transcripts of this show, please visit www.PetLifeRadio.com.
1: Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.